Welcome to McKinsey and the Coronavirus Crisis. This is our first episode filmed on April 3rd, 2020. In this episode, I, Jenny Ray, speak with Lisa. I'm a former Bain consultant and she is a former McKinsey consultant. We talk about how, as consultants, we think about data in the midst of a crisis like the coronavirus, where we look at data to be not too simple, i.e. not useful for decision-making, but also not too complex, not easily able to be disseminated to make public policy and to make lasting change. We talk about how companies, countries, and even independent consultants can and should be addressing the coronavirus crisis. Welcome to our first episode. Hi, I'm Jenny Ray LaRue, and on March 9th, 2020, I got a message on Facebook from a friend of mine who was a McKinsey consultant in Italy. The message read, Italy, 9,172 cases, 463 deaths. The death rate, 5.05%. And Germany, 1,224 cases, two deaths. The death rate, 0.16%. Either coronavirus is scared by beer and Wurstels, or counting is not homogenous. I'm here today with an ex-McKinsey consultant, Lisa Bright, to talk about how McKinsey probably would think about the coronavirus, which was an idea that came to me when I first read this message. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Interesting topic right now, for sure. Very excited to hear a little bit from you. Can you share, if you can, just reading a, a text, a message like that, where the context comes from and how McKinsey would look at data broadly in a situation like the one that we're in today? Awesome. So that's a really interesting statistic, and it's really interesting, those two dynamics um, showcasing Italy versus Germany. Um, initially, when I hear that, I initially think about the source of the data, right, because it seems like it, it can't be right, right? Because you've got um, one country with a 5% death rate and one with 0.16%. And obviously it is the same disease, right? So the fact the fact that it would be impacting people different seems really strange. Um, and so from my perspective as a McKinsey consultant, I'd really be interested in looking at how they're capturing the data, right? So make sure we're doing like an apples, an apples comparison between those two countries, because it just seems really fascinating as to how it's Absolutely. that different. And Lisa, can we talk a little bit about how in a corporate setting, that same kind of data disparity might come up and why it would raise those questions in a corporate setting? Yeah, I actually had this exact example happen on my very first project. It was with um, healthcare um, within a health insurance setting. And there was some in different information across different states that just did not make sense. You know, it was something very much like this, but I think it was even even more of a drastic difference. So like 10% in, in one state and, you know, 1% in another, you know, something like that. Um, and you're looking at the data and it just didn't add up. Turns out there was a reason for it, that the data collection was actually very different across those different states. Um, and they were missing a ton of data actually in the state <laughs> where the, the data was so low. Um, and so this just reminds me of an exact project that I was working on um, and questioning the source of the data. And turns out the data was actually incorrect. <laughs> So developing a source of truth in a public health crisis where you have differences across countries and across borders, of course, there could actually be differences. You could have treatment differences or population differences, but without normalizing for those using simplified data can be incredibly dangerous. What are some of the dangerous things that you see happening related to coronavirus 
data sharing and data collection processes right now? Yeah, I think one of the major issues is I feel like it's such a new disease that we don't have good collection of the data. So on one hand, we're telling people stay home, especially if you're young and healthy, don't go to the hospital. So lots of people I know, they've been sick, they've had flu symptoms, but they're not going. Um, So obviously all of those people, of course, some of them probably have it, but their data isn't being captured as, um, you know, an actual incidence of having coronavirus. So it could really inflate the death rate. Um, you know, so we just don't know, unfortunately, at this point, because it is so new. And so getting good data collection would be really interesting. Um, one of the things that I've seen actually um, was looking at uh, antibody testing to see how many people have actually have it um, in a random sample. And so you'd have to account for, you know, hotspots like New York versus I'm in the Ohio area. Um, but doing a nice random sampling across the country to really understand how many people have it um, is something I, I've seen recently that I thought would be really interesting to do that study. And that would speak to not just who has had it, but maybe who would be immune or more likely to be immune going forward. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit about how if you were staffed on a project at McKinsey, hypothetically, you would be thinking about some of the data in this coronavirus episode that we're going through right now? Yeah, so I think um, a big part would be in understanding how these different countries, and even within the same country, how they're actually getting their data and how they're collecting it. Um, Because we need to account for the differences, right? So there are going to be some differences that are you know, due to the population. So Italy having an older population, for example. Um, But then also looking at the um, rules and things that are put in place and the countermeasures in those countries to see how it's impacting the data would be really important. Um, And so building a, a model that accounts for all of that, I could see that being a very interesting and complex model to build. Um, but that I think would give us a much clearer picture as to what's really going on with the virus. One of the things that I always think about that we were impressed upon at Bain, and I'm sure at McKinsey it was the same, is that the first thing that you really need to understand is what metric you're trying to use to measure something. Because until you can understand what the right metric is, you can't get the right data. And if you don't have the right data, then you can't make conclusions. And so we would work back from the answer, what the metric was that we were looking for. What are some of the metrics that you think we would be really valuable to be looking at in the coronavirus episode right now? I think from a health perspective, I think the infection rate would be one that I was kind of mentioning with the antibody testing to see how many people have actually had the disease or the virus. Um, and then looking at the death rate, um, once you know how many people actually have had it and either recovered. And so, um, the opposite of that would be the, uh, the recovery rate. And I think that one, you know, when you think about it from that perspective is pretty promising. Um, but looking at both, I think that would be really important. But it, again, comes down to having really solid data, which at this point, um, no one really has that, unfortunately. Now, that's really good when you're thinking about the health implications of the mm-hmm. disease. And of course, McKinsey has practice areas that focus on health and on public uh, public services. But there is also this other really big question around what the response and the capacity of the healthcare system is. Can you talk a little bit about what data we should be looking at and collecting and reporting out on and making public around the public health availability to treat the virus if people do have it? Yeah, so when I think about this, there's a lot of different aspects of it. So there's obviously the testing, there's the ICU beds that are available, there's ventilators. These are the things that we're hearing on a day-to-day basis. Um, really being able to get some numbers around that as to what's available and then the forecast. And I think there's so many moving parts right now that it's just really difficult um, 
to kind of count, account for all of those things. Um, but really knowing the projection and then how many we have would be quite important. But I've, I've seen some informa information out there. Um, I know even within one company, it can be very difficult. Like some of the clients I've worked for, they don't have a, like one source of truth in terms of the data. And if you take that and you multiply that by hundreds and thousands of hospitals and, you know, all the different organizations out there knowing, for example, how many ventilators do we actually have? It's not that easy of a question, actually. Um, so I think getting some data around that, what we actually have, what's projected, I think that would be really important. Um, and then another thing that I think with the with the healthcare perspective would be understanding a little bit more about, um, you know, the, the effectiveness of some of these treatments that we're looking at. Um, and having some numbers around that to really understand which ones are working, which ones are not, um, you know, and to really understand what the risk is. Can I start back at the beginning there? You mentioned that one of the first things would be testing. Mm -hmm. Can we even break it down into each of those metrics? What do you think the testing metrics are that mm -hmm. are important for us to measure? And if you were in a public health position, what are some of the things that you would really want to be pushing on in terms of testing? Yeah, so I think a big one is just total, the testing rate in terms of the total number of population. So I've heard that I think the U.S. is doing the highest number of tests per day right now, I believe. But as a percentage of our overall population, it's not as high as somewhere like, I believe, South Korea is actually higher. So knowing the, so getting that up, right, in terms of the number of So not the absolute number of tests, mm -hmm. but instead the percentage of tests by percentage of population to get more yep. of a true rate of infection, okay? Yeah, I think that would definitely be one. Um, another one would be the testing rate of people that have been seeking a test. Um, so I know there's been plenty of issues where we haven't had enough tests to go around. Um, and so there are people seeking a test that think they may have coronavirus, but they can't necessarily get a test. So, so I think almost that rate, the percentage... Let's see here. The percentage rejection rate of yes. <laughs> desired testing. Okay. Yep, exactly. I think that one would be really interesting. I think that's one that we would probably want to be at 100%. Um, just practically speaking, getting the number of tests out there um, that quickly is a challenge with 320 million people. <laughs> so one of the um, other things that I'm thinking in this is that could be interesting is also thinking about test segmentation. I understand that there are different kinds of tests that have different return rates in terms of the speed with which they're used. And so really being able to identify hot spots where you had a large number of people that wanted to be tested that weren't getting tested, maybe pushing more efficient testing to those environments would be mm -hmm. helpful. Yeah. And to that point around um, how long does it take to get the test and then how long does it take to get that test actually processed? Um, so I know that was a big backlog. So they had enough tests, but they didn't have enough labs to actually conduct the tests. So looking at how long it actually takes, I'm looking at a metric around that to see if we're reducing that. So you don't have people waiting around to see, you know, for three days to see whether or not they actually test positive or not. Because um, you want those people not wandering about while they're waiting on their their results. Um, so I think that the, the metric of time um, of how long does it take to actually administer the test, but then also um, to actually process that test to get the results back. Fantastic. Now I'm seeing slides emerge before my eyes, but what, let, let's move on to the next step of the process, which is once somebody is confirmed positive, uh, tell me what metrics you would look at to see how the initial response was handled in different communities to try to develop pathways for improvement of public health outcomes. Oh, sorry. Could you repeat that again? Sure. So Wondering if you can talk a little bit about, let's say somebody is confirmed positive or confirmed negative, what what 
measures in place would you look at to measure the public health capacity or the public health response in terms of what they do then versus the final outcomes in order to assess which places are winners and which places maybe are lacking in their ability or their capability or their capacity to respond. Yeah, so I think this is a lot of looking at some of the metrics within the hospitals. So let's say someone's, you know, test negative, how you want to minimize the number of resources that you're spending on, you know, dealing with that person and their, the issues that they're having. But if somebody tests positive, um, it'd be interesting to look at the, the overall response in terms of how quickly, um, in terms of timing, are they able to get them either quarantined? Um, how quickly are they able to assess their actual medical issues? So, for example, if somebody's having severe breathing problems, you obviously want to get them in early um, to start treating them for the issues that they're having um, and for their symptoms. So I would be looking at the time. Um, and then also, I think it's a measure of getting back to some of the the metrics within the healthcare system, you know, in terms of availability of, let's say, ICU units or ventilators. Um, so looking at the percentage of those people that are able to get the services that they need on time. So that was going to be my next question. What what kind of data would you gather? And like you were beginning to say before, what are the challenges of gathering this data in terms of ICU capacity, ventilator capacity, the cost to build new hospital capacity, et cetera? What are some of those key metrics in hospital and treatment capacity that you see as being valuable? Yeah, so I think one of the, the major issues is that um, everything is just changing on a day-to-day basis. So you have like ships showing up in New York and California, for example, that's expanding capacity. They're building hospitals um, in different areas. I think some of the convention centers. Um, I've heard there's even some in Ohio that they're prepping just in case. Um, and so it's an ever-changing thing. Um, and I've seen that they're also transferring patients to different areas. Um, so really understanding um, kind of a very fluid situation um, I think is quite challenging. Um, the metrics, I mean, I'm kind of curious your thoughts. I don't know if I have any thoughts on specific metrics um, for that, but I was curious if you have any as well. So I guess that the main thing would be just a constant update of availability and mm. capacity. But uh, some of the challenge seems like there isn't a report when things are freed up. So if somebody comes off of a ventilator, that's maybe not added back. So uh, there, there, well, there's one challenge in just doing the counting in a static environment. Normally it would take, as you know, a month or three months to gather this kind of data. But what we really need is actually a daily basis report and a narrow focus of metrics so that we can make sure that we're measuring the right things at the right time, so that we're not sending ventilators to a place that needed them two weeks ago when they actually should be in a place that needs them tomorrow. Yeah, and I think the major challenge there is the forecasting, right? So it's, like you said, it's hard to know, it's ever-changing. And so, for example, New York may need them now, but in two weeks, it could be somewhere else. Um, And so being able to forecast, they keep talking about the curves, right? So being able to forecast that and know where those items are needed and when, I think that is the key challenge. Um, And to your point around the daily um, updates, so I don't know on the back end if they do have some kind of reporting system where every hospital, everybody who has an ICU bed or a ventilator, for example, updates their capacity on a regular basis, that would be a great idea. I don't know if they're doing that right now or not, but that's definitely something they should consider if they don't have it already. 
Well, speaking of what's actually been done, you and I both know that McKinsey is actually working on these projects. And while we don't have firsthand data of specifically what and where and who is doing that work, we do know that they're working with Jared Kushner. We do know that they're working with Mayor, with uh, Cuomo in New York. We do know that they're deployed in certain places that they're working in Italy on the problem. And so w- without regard to what we know to be true, which is only that they're working on these things, can you talk about what life is probably like for a McKinsey consultant that's working on some of these problems right now? What kind of teams are they staffed on? What kind of guidance are they given? What kind of things are they expected to drum up information on on their own? And what kind of resources do they have to do that? Yeah, so now would be um, a very interesting time to be a consultant in general. I keep thinking that of like, it'd be really interesting to be back at my old job. Um, I got to say, when I was at McKinsey, there was nothing crazy going on. It was a pretty, pretty calm time overall. Um, And so thinking about this, you know, if I were to kind of break this up, I'm assuming there's uh, you know, a fair amount of work happening um, at multiple different levels, right? So obviously you have the the healthcare situation, you know, these firms, consulting firms do a lot of work in the healthcare space. Um, and so being able to expand bed capacity, increase testing, um, get medical supplies to where they should be and when, um, and relying on the forecast in order to do that, I think a lot of that can be very data-driven. Now, again, the modeling for this is very difficult. Um, so I think there's a big piece around the actual healthcare side of things. Um, and then there's also, you know, the economy as a whole that we know is obviously uh, there's a lot of issues going on there. Um, and then with the clients, right? So all the clients that they were working with previously, um, a lot of them now have severe challenges, whether it comes to workforce or supply chains. Um, so there's just a lot of things going on, um, I would imagine, at these consulting firms right now, trying to keep everything afloat. Um, so it'd be a very interesting time, I think, to be in consulting overall. Absolutely. And uh, when it comes to McKinsey, what would be your best guess as to whether they have a team here or a team there deployed on this, whether it's all hands on deck? And again, um, how, you know, is is it an intense time to be a consultant? What do you think? Yeah, I would definitely think so. So, uh, you know, a lot of times the projects that you're working on as a consultant would be how do we make this company more profitable, right? Or how do we think of the how, how do we think about um, helping them with their growth strategy, right, for the next 10 years? This is now present. It has to be done immediately. Um, so I think it would be actually a really intense time um, knowing that lives are at stake, um, you know, companies, whether or not they're going to succeed or fail at the end um, when this is all over. I think that is going to create a lot of stress overall. Um, I could see, I would picture teams deployed across a lot of different areas, right? So within corporations, um, maybe even repurposing if they were doing a 10-year growth strategy. I don't know if that's the top priority right now, right? It's keeping the supply chains moving um, and making sure that things are getting where they need to be and they can keep the stock, the shelves stocked and things like that. Um, so I could see a lot of repurposing. Um, and then with the the economy, you know, the healthcare issues and so forth, I could see a lot of projects um, being staffed up, like you mentioned, uh, working with Kushner, for example, um, to kind of help improve the supply chain and things like that. So I see a lot of ad hoc projects probably going on um, to kind of help, you know, put out fires essentially where they're at. Now, you mentioned that you did some work in healthcare. One of the things that we think and look about in Strategy Simplified is how cost structures drive companies through their strategy in times of change. And uh, I would just love for you to talk a little bit about the healthcare cost structure, about whether it is predominantly a fixed 
cost structure or a variable cost structure, and whether that's been upended or changed in relation to what's happening right now with COVID-19. So I spend a lot of my time working with health insurers, primarily within the healthcare realm. There's so many different areas within healthcare. Um, And so with health insurers, you know, it's a lot of the variable cost of um, the benefit payments, Right. So um, obviously there's been some regulatory factors coming out from the federal government regarding that. Um, but obviously you have a lot of sick people <laughs> going to hospitals, um, and especially um, if you're sick and, um, you know, you're concerned that you might have coronavirus, then you might actually be more likely to go to the doctor right, to get checked out and stuff. So it's really interesting to see how this is going to affect um, the benefit payouts um, for health insurers, which um, is a significant amount of money. Um, and, you know, a slight change, one, two percent increase um, could turn a company from being profitable to unprofitable overnight. Um, so there's a, I think there's a lot of risk overall within healthcare right now. Um, and from that perspective, you know, looking at the financial viability of a lot of companies and financial stress testing and things like that, um, that's a big area I could see consulting firms being involved in to see how well they can sustain moving forward. Can they meet um, their obligations, you know, over the next few months um, as they try to weather the storm? So some of the firms that we've heard being very busy right now are some of the workout oriented firms like Alex Partners or Alvarez and Marcel. (laughs) And as you mentioned, McKinsey seems to be very busy. Can you talk just a little bit about what you do know as an alum about how they're adapting to hiring and staffing in this new environment? Yeah, so it's really interesting to see what the different firms are doing. So I know some firms have suspended hiring, for example, um, like I said, probably putting out fires in a lot of different areas. It depends on the type of work they're doing as to whether or not um, they're going to be really busy. So, for example, McKinsey does seem to be (laughs) quite busy at this time. Um, So they've actually they've been hiring um, quite aggressively, actually. Um, They've moved a lot of their interviews to online so they can still keep doing this and, and meet the demand of, you know, all the client work that they have plus all these other things going on due to the coronavirus. Um, And so from that perspective, some of the consulting firms are still hiring full speed ahead. It's just they have to change the model, Um, which has caused, I think, a little bit of a slowdown um, temporarily while they (laughs) switch everything around and kind of get their processes reorganized. Um, But overall, it seems like uh, firms like McKinsey, um, things are are staying pretty stable in terms of a recruiting perspective. Um, It's just a different, different model in doing so. There's one saying that we always had at Bain was, if you've got a problem, it doesn't matter what the problem is, we'll fix it. Good economy, (laughs) bad economy problem, we're here for you. Yeah, so I think a lot of the discretionary um, consulting type work that may not be immediate um, might slow down, but then, you know, there's a lot of companies in a lot of trouble right now. And so work for us. (laughs) And you mentioned that earlier in the beginning that the the interest in just doing a 10-year growth project for the future. Nobody knows the future at the moment. So wanting to invest capital that you should probably be using to cover payroll or cover debt obligations might not be the best and wisest move of your cash deployment right now. Exactly. Yep. Can you give any advice? Let's imagine just for a second that you have an audience with Jared Kushner or with, uh, with Andrew Cuomo, what is it that you would want to say? What, what is it that you'd want to propose? Uh, would, how would you encourage them? Uh, what would you offer? So let me think about that. There's, uh, there's a lot of different things. That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, so one, I think, comes back to our conversation, the, the Facebook post that you saw around the data. 
I think there's a lot of decisions um, being made at a high level right now that um, might evolve as the data turns out to be different than we expected or if it, it is validated, right? So I think one of the big things um, would be from a testing perspective, really being able to get good solid data that we can make good decisions based off of. Because right now, we just don't know. That's that's the tricky part. Um, and then the second thing, um, my biggest concern with all of this, I think, you know, eventually coronavirus, it will subside, life will get back to normal. The question is, how do we come out on the other end? Right. So making sure that we're making decisions um, that can, you know, at the same time, protect the public, but at the same time, not crash the economy at the same time. And so it's a very delicate balance um, that I think is uh, is very difficult. I'm glad I'm not the one um, in that position to make that decision. <laughs> so just as my final question to you, mm -hmm. uh, nobody knows the future, but at McKinsey and at Bain, we always do try to tell a picture of what the, the future might hold. What metrics do you think we should be looking at to have an idea of changes that we could make as a society or in the, the treatment methods? What, when will we know that it is okay for life to at least begin to revert back to quote normal, even if it never will quite be the same again? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is really understanding what the risk really is. Um, so for example, if the risk is not as high and if we can get data that shows, you know, the death rate is not as high as we really think it is, it's not as high as let's say in Italy, the 5%, um, then, you know, we could maybe get back to work, right? Um, or with the antibody testing, knowing who's actually been able to overcome the coronavirus and, you know, they could be let out into society again to get back to work and not have the economy completely shut down. Um, but I think it, it comes down to having the data is really important, um, and then some of the other metrics moving forward and thinking about, um, you know, stuff like this is going to happen. So, you know, how do companies, I think it's a good good lesson for companies as well to try to improve their liquidity, make sure that they can last more than two weeks, you know, if, if something happens. I think it's good for small businesses as well. I think I heard the stat that um, most small businesses can last maybe three weeks or so. Um, it was somewhere in that time frame, which kind of blew my mind that, um, you know, if something goes wrong, there's not a whole lot of runway there. Um, and so uh, thinking about public health, right, in terms of our spending, in terms of, um, you know, being able to ramp up capacity, you don't want to have um, unnecessary capacity all the time, right? It's a waste of money. But can you make the system agile enough that you can ramp up testing very quickly um, or, you know, just regulatory factors that FDA approvals can happen really quickly, right? So kind of um, thinking about how we plan for this in the future, that if something happens, um, you know, we can, we can adjust, you know, in terms of the situations that we're faced with. If I can paraphrase what I heard you say, you said, get the data, read the data, and monitor the data over time. Am I right? I like it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us and for illuminating for us how a McKinsey consultant would think about the coronavirus pandemic. We really appreciate your time. Awesome. Not a problem. Thanks to be here. Thank you for joining us for the very first episode of Strategy Simplified. If you loved this episode, please leave a review, subscribe, and give us feedback. If you have ideas for future sessions or suggestions of great guests you'd like to see on the platform, email us at team at managementconsultant.com.